Hi, everybody, and welcome to Groove Therapy. I am your host, Dr. Leah Taylor, and I'm joined here with my fabulous co-host, Tara Lee Weathers. That's me. Hi, Tara Lee. Hi. (laughs) Hi. And we are back here with you this week to bring you an episode with Reed Mathis. It's a really exciting episode. And Tara Lee, why don't you tell us a little bit about why we had Reed on the podcast? So I adore Reed. He is one of my favorite musicians. I mean, I say this about all the people that we have interviewed, but they're all my favorite musicians and people, which is why I choose them. And Reed in particular has such an interesting mind and the way that he goes about music and life is just so interesting that I was really excited about having him on this podcast so listeners could get a little bit of a glimpse into that magical mind of his. Yes, it was so awesome. I totally agree. I I had this like instinct that I wanted Reed on the podcast early on as well. And I didn't even really know why. But now that we've recorded this episode, I absolutely know why. Because right out of the gates, he just like went off talking about things that are so interesting, like improvisation and bringing yourself vulnerable and open and brave to the live music experience. And he know, he's so knowledgeable about topics that I know a lot about, like the nervous system and attachment. And that was really cool to hear because to talk to somebody who can make that connection between live music and those psychological topics that a lot of musicians I don't think really think about was so cool. Yeah. And full disclosure to our listeners, normally Leah and I talk beforehand and decide who's going to introduce and like kind of what we're going to talk about a little bit. And we just didn't. Like, I don't even know why. It's not that we even forgot. We just didn't do it. And then the conversation that happened was so magical. And actually, like, that's what we were talking about the whole time is that it's when you don't have a script and you don't know where you're going. It's really scary and vulnerable. But that's when the magic happens. And that is what is happening during this episode. And I'm so excited for you all to to hear how that went down. Yeah. And it ended kind of abruptly. Listen to the whole thing to find out why. But I think we'll have to have Reed back (laughs) to ask him some more questions because I know I certainly have some more questions for him. Yeah, so many questions. Yeah. So we are a part of Osiris Podcast Network and we're so happy to be a part of them. And if you guys haven't checked them out, you can check them out at osirispod.com. There's some really cool podcasts on there that I think that you'll really enjoy. And I was just listening to Comes a Time, which is O'Teal's new podcast yesterday and today and the Mickey Hart episode. And it was so cool because what they were talking about on there was very much related to our Zach Gill episode, which released two weeks ago. And so just talking about the experience of the whole audience and the band members really feeling it and what that means. And Mickey actually is another musician that has done a lot of research on the experience of live music. So that's why I was really excited to listen to that episode and just hear his take on what's happening and what's going on. And so if you guys liked our Zach Gill episode, then for sure check out Comes a Time, especially the Mickey Hart episode. And another podcast that's on Osiris that I love is No Simple Road. And it's a weekly podcast discussing psychedelics, music culture, and living the long, strange trip. All things that I love. And I had the pleasure of getting to be a guest on this show. So I'm in one of the episodes. If you go back to listen and you want to hear more of my voice and insights, they totally got me and understood what I was talking about. And it was such a pleasure to be on it. And they've also been so supportive of me and our podcast throughout this whole process. When I have questions, I reach out to them and they're just so open and amazing. And the second they found out our podcast was going to be on Osiris, they're like, welcome to the most amazing family ever. And so we're so happy to be here and you should all check out No Simple Road. Yeah, definitely do that too. And if you have not subscribe to our podcast, Groove Therapy on Apple Podcasts, then please go ahead and do so so that you don't miss a new episode. And also, please make sure that you leave a rating or a review. We would really, really, really appreciate it, especially as we are just getting started. And that's how other people can really find out about it. 
Yeah, and tell all your friends. And you can also follow us on Instagram at Groove Therapy Podcast. And we started a Facebook community so we can connect with other people that are into the Groove Therapy lifestyle. And that is the Groove Therapy Podcast community. So check that out too. All right. Well, I think we should probably go ahead and get to our interview with Reed. What do you say? Yeah, we'll be right back. So, hey, Reed. Hi. What's up? How's it going, y'all? We're good. Welcome to Groove Therapy. Yeah, I'm excited to learn about this. Well, we are excited to learn from you, and I think that all of us are really just excited to be here to learn more about this experience that we love so much that is primarily a nonverbal experience. So to bring meaning and language to it is really exciting, at least for me. So thanks so much for being here. And Reed, you have been in so many projects, especially lately. I feel like every time around the Bay Area, I see you doing something new. So you have Electric Beethoven and Bone Diggers, Golden Gate Wingmen, and you've been in Tea Leaf Green recently. What else have you been up to? How would you describe your musical resume? I mean, the main thing I did was Jacob Red Jazz Odyssey which I did from 1994 to 2009. Since then, I've just kind of been hopping around. But my belief system is very rooted in Jacob Red Jazz Odyssey and what we, what we were about. Yeah, well, why don't you tell us a little bit about that belief system? Um, well, I mean, I guess you could say in a way it would be, it could be described as faith-based, which is a term that's usually applied to Christians. But we were basically like gambling because there isn't a ton of objective evidence that it's true, but gambling that that vulnerable, brave, honest music making would have an extremely positive effect on the listeners that are open to it in a way that like something that's just like catchy or something that is planned might not. It's basically sort of a fanatical devotion to improvising. Not improvising in the sense of how most sort of rock jam bands do it, where it's like one person solos and the other people kind of noodle under it. But we would do the kind of improvising where nothing's planned, where everybody is responding authentically in the moment. And you gain something and lose something from that approach. We used to sort of underplay it by saying, well, sometimes you get lucky, you know? Like when people would compliment us, we would be like, well, yeah, we got lucky tonight, you know? Because it really is a huge dice roll, which is why most bands write songs and perform their songs the same speed every time and the same, the solo comes in the same spot and you're giving up a lot of stuff in order to live a fully improvised form of music. You're basically giving up most of the things that people like about music. And you're gambling that there is a trade-off there. That in exchange for giving up all that stuff that most people like about music, that you are... Like, what would you say those things are that most people like about music? Reliability. You know, every time you put on Strawberry Fields Forever, it sounds like that. It's not going to suddenly surprise you. Even a band like Fish or The Grateful Dead that is generally associated with improvising, improvising is sort of a more true of Fish than The Dead, I would say, is like a, it's an aspect of what they do, but a huge amount of their music does sound the same every time they play it. And what you gain from that is that people are put in a frame of mind of security. We're all carrying around these inner children that are the emotional and spiritual recordings of our early life and our early caregivers and how we related to our mother when we were infants and stuff like that. And like what the mood was in our house when we were pre-verbal. And that part of us really likes to be reassured. And basically like you need to hold a baby in such a way that the baby can intuitively sense that you're not going to drop it. And you can't tell the baby because the baby doesn't speak English. So you have to actually create the sensation in the baby that you're not going to drop it, that it can trust you. 
And that becomes reliability. That becomes the need for reliability. So, which is a perfectly legitimate need. And music can meet that need. I use music for that need. I listen to, there are some recordings I have listened to, I wish I was exaggerating, tens of thousands of times. Because they are no longer songs to me. They are like security blankets. I can put on certain recordings and just my whole nervous system is reassured because... Yeah, they're like mantras. They're like mantras, exactly. They are so stable that I can anchor to them when life is storming or unreliable. They can compensate for the extreme unreliability of life. So what we were doing was the opposite of that. We were trying... Do you know the story of Daniel and the lion's den in the Bible? You know, there's Daniel's, there's some corrupt government that throws throws this spiritual practitioner into jail. And he, they throw him in a room full of like lions that haven't been fed. And he just sort of loves the lions and they don't eat him. Obviously, it's a metaphor. All the Bible stories are poetic stories, you know. So rather than be afraid of what threatens you, befriend it is sort of the principle at work. So we basically treated performing as that act. What is scary about life? And how can we use music to, I guess, just work with that? How do we work with that? Like, you are never going to succeed in making life reliable. You will never make people in your life stop changing. You will never make people you don't know from doing things that affect your life like running a red light or something like you will never you will never be able to cause reality to become reliable so there are two ways to meet that one is to choose very reliable things in order to be comforted so that you can have the resilience to deal with the permanent state of challenge that being alive is the other approach is to get comfortable with that unreliability. So we would basically walk right up to the thing that is scary about being alive and gamble that walking up to that unarmed, meaning without a prepared song or a prepared baseline or a prepared ending or a plan, basically, walking up to the moment without a plan of how you're going to dominate it and make it reliable for you, that that act would be so transformative and valuable that it was worth giving up all the things that make venues packed, (laughs) basically. Dance music is based on reliability. Dance music is based on a good groove is an adult who makes you feel like they're not going to drop you. A good groove is like, that's what makes it a groove. You know, it's like, it is reliable. If it suddenly changes direction sharply, dancers stop dancing, basically. They don't choose to stop dancing. Their nervous system actually switches to sympathetic preparation for the unforeseen for threat. So we sort of played towards the threat because we were gambling that it wasn't so scary after all. That basically, like, if the audience would be willing to do that with us, to walk up to unreliability without shields and weapons, that we would still be okay. That you just train the nervous system over and over that you survive that risk. And then you do it again the next night, and you do it again the next song, and you do it again, like, over and over and over and over exposing yourself to what you are primarily terrified of and surviving it, thereby creating an inner resilience that then spills over into the rest of your life, into your relationships, into your... You start reducing your need to control other people, reducing your need to change other people's minds, reducing your need to numb from your own experience... It's almost like electroshock therapy or something where you are causing discomfort in order to raise your, I don't know, what would you say? It's not really raising your tolerance. It's changing your response to it. You're removing the threat from this uncomfortable experience. So that's a very different form of making music 
than writing a song that people love and then presenting it as that every time. And obviously, it's a spectrum with a huge gray area. And most jam bands are sort of in the middle. We sound like this. We have these songs. These songs pretty much sound like this. And then we improvise within that. We'll have one element of it improvising or something. But the groove is the same every time we play it. But then the soloist is changing or something. Like, they'll have one aspect of it be vulnerable to danger. We were a band, and I tried to have every band I'm in, rather than have everybody take turns exposing themselves to danger as the soloist or the singer or whatever, everybody does it the whole time. And thereby, the audience has to do it the whole time. And what that means is three-fourths of the audience leaves. And the fourth that stays has a transformative medicinal experience where they leave not going, that was a cool show. They leave going, that was amazing. I feel healed. I feel cleansed. I feel like I've purged resentments. And you know what I mean? Like this whole other kind of experience that, yeah, it's not for everybody. But the people it's for, it's the goods. <laughs> yeah, I have that, like, I have goosebumps all over just, like, thinking about it because I'm one of those fourth of the people that yeah. stayed in the audience and had a transformative experience. Totally. I, I went to Jacob, Jacob Fred. I've seen you a whole bunch of times. One time in the Knitting Factory in particular, I remember having one of those experiences. And, and I never heard you explain it in that way, so I didn't really understand why it was happening. And, and like, I love embracing the things that are uncomfortable. So that's probably why, like, I like feeling that. And then, because that's where great magic and change and things come from. And so, and you create that all the time with your music. That's, that's such a beautiful tool. And I feel like it's so important for the world to have, like, all music is important, but I feel like your music is like really important, especially right now with everything that's going on. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's one, it's a tool. One of the things humans are currently doing very wrong is claiming to know the right answer. And it really turns other humans off when you say that. And admittedly in my twenties, when we were really Jacob fretting as hard as we could, I did think we had the right answer. Now I know that we had one of the many right answers, but it is very much the right answer for me. Although in my personal life, I very much use music for the opposite purpose as well, for security, for reliability, for comfort. I love that the Beatles sound the same every time I put them on. Even Charlie Parker, John Coltrane and the Grateful Dead, people that embraced risk wholeheartedly in their performing, those recordings aren't surprising. It's like, yeah, that show might have been surprising if you were there. But Dick's Picks Volume 18 sounds the same every time I put it on. In the moment, it was very risky what they were doing. The recording of it is not risky. So, yeah, I'm a believer in both methods, really. But as a performer, I lean way harder towards walk up to the lion and pet him. He's not going to eat you. Well, and they're both so important. I mean, even people that are pushing the boundaries, like you're absolutely describing and realizing that, oh my gosh, I'm not going to die if I really throw myself into this unknown and this vulnerability. It's going to be okay. And I'm going to be surrounded by other people that are doing the same thing. But even people doing that, like we still need that reliability and that comfort because it's like we have to go and push those edges, but then we have to come back. Like we have to come back yeah. and take care of ourselves. Rest and digest. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So it's so important. And oh my gosh, Rita, like I never saw Jacob Fred. And so I am so excited to hear you talk about this. Oh, right on. I mean, I, you know, I left the group 12 years ago. I play the exact same stance in every situation a hundred percent of the time. It's funny when people, I don't know. I don't know what to say about that. But like, yeah, I am just hardwired for that kind of, like, you, you get what you pay for, basically, when it comes to, yeah, it's like, do you want comfort or do you want healing? Because Advil will take your headache away, but it won't fix why you got a headache. I'm sort of a, as a performer, I like nutrition <laughs> and as a listener, I like comfort. <laughs> but then when I connected it with Beethoven's life story, I was like, okay, well, here is a way to do this with a very literal metaphor. Is that a thing? Literal mm. metaphor? <laughs> with 
I'll take it. Here's a way to do it where people can sort of wrap their heads around this because I'm not, rather than making it about me, I'm making it about this historical figure who could be said to have been practicing the same art form. And now that he's dead, his art form has become the opposite. So during his life, his music was considered very risky, very unreliable, very challenging. And since his death, it's performed the same way every time. It has become... Classical music is the cliche of reliable music, that you're actually judged on how well you can recreate it every time, rather than your ability to be open to risk while doing it, you know? So I was like, oh, well, if I do that style of improvising, but within this story, maybe more people can comprehend what we're doing. Yeah, and it it creates a little bit of safety, which is kind of what I was thinking about because people do need that safety. And even like as a performer with this like really strong intention of stepping up, being vulnerable and brave and honest, how did you create that feeling of safety inside of yourself that you felt safe enough to step up to the plate and to do that? Bandmates. Having a really, really serious commitment to the relationships within the ensemble. That's something that was really special about Jacob Fred that is something you don't often get later in life. I think that when you are in your late teens and early 20s, you're undergoing involuntary transformation at such a rapid rate that if you are able to make huge positive strides in your relationships at that age, and those relationships are also creative partnerships, because your inside stuff is so fluid at that age already, you can really make a lot of progress and cover a lot of ground. Later in life, you know a little more who you are and what you're about. The people you're playing with, you know, these days I find myself playing with a group of people for a few days, maybe one day, and then it'll be a different group of people the next day or the next weekend or the whatever. I'm in so many projects and half the time it's not even projects. It's sort of an assemblage of musicians to perform together at a festival or at a thing. A lot of things are put together for one performance only. So in a situation like that, you basically are what you are when you get there. You're not going to change those relationships super profoundly over the course of that one day, probably, you know? So the thing about bands that start when you're that age, when you're in your early 20s or late teens, is that you are capable of a really, really serious amount of growth that then translates into the music. The only reason we were able to get on stage in cities where we didn't live in front of rooms full of strangers and be that vulnerable was because we trusted each other. Yeah, it's like somebody who's teaching you how to ride a bike and they hold your shoulders and run with you as you're riding the bike and you feel safe and then you go and then sometimes you fall down and get hurt and other times you like ride your bike into the sunset and it's glorious and magnificent so it sounds like your bandmates are like that they like held your shoulders so then you could go and try to ride your bike and see what happens we basically like yeah we we had some approximation of unconditional positive regard for one another at least musically also there were very reliable aspects to our music we were hoping that the courage would be the tangibly reliable thing that the audience could hold on to. Like the fact that we would never flinch or that if we did flinch, we wouldn't lie about it and hide it. That that courage would be completely reliable. And the audience, if they could at least meet us that far, that we will not abandon them during the course of this exercise, basically, you know? So there were very reliable aspects. It just wasn't the song. Yeah, so your confidence and like doing what you're doing, knowing that you're surrounded by this band that like has your back and you guys are all in this together. And it kind of, it reminds me of Fish in a couple of different ways. Just like the rescue squad, like with Trey getting kind of stranded up in the air and everybody making kind of comments like, oh, you need your rescue squad. Like it kind of reminds me like you have this group of people that's like going to be there if you fall. And hopefully just one of you is going to fall at a time and not everybody is going down at the same time. So you can all kind of be there to like catch each other as you fall because you're all committed to doing this together. Completely. And I feel like, 
I can feel when a band shows up in vulnerability. And I love that because I know it takes a lot. But just like you said, Terry, I feel like that's where the magic is able to be created because that's where the egos get set aside. And it's like, okay, here we are. We're going to do this thing and we're going to see what happens. And if it's like all wrote in your head, then there's no room for that magic because you already know what it's going to look like. You know, there's not that space for that magic to come in. Yeah. As a listener, you're free to experience whatever is going to happen. Because like Leah said, you're not anticipating the like chorus coming back around because there is no chorus coming back around. So you can go further than you normally would because there's nothing that's going to bring you back home. Right. Or if there is a part of the song that comes back, it doesn't resemble the last time it showed up. Like that part of the song has been somewhere and come back and you are now meeting it as a changed entity. It's like the commitment to treat every moment as new information, you know? Even if you have ridden your bike down this street a thousand times, you still look, you're still curious, you know? It isn't the same street as yesterday. It just looks that way if you don't look closely. It's not the same street as five minutes ago. You weren't on it five minutes ago, you know? So this sort of like surrender of your nervous system. I feel like the human brain, Krishnamurti talks about how the left brain, the thinky brain, is basically an aperture that closes what we would call concentrating or focus. I mean, the word focus literally means an aperture closing. So like the conscious mind is there to screen out what it considers not our problem right now. For instance, I don't know what's happening behind me. I haven't been paying attention to it this entire conversation. My brain has decided that that's fine back there and I don't need to pay attention to it while I'm talking to you. But that doesn't make what's happening behind me less real than this conversation. It's just that the only way we're able to function as adult humans is to screen out 95% of our experience. And the reason we take psychedelics is to kind of force that aperture to not close so far. I voluntarily want more stimuli. I want more realness. I want more reality. I want more receptivity. I want less screening out, less noise-canceling headphones. Do you know how noise-canceling headphones work? It's fascinating. They don't actually mute any frequencies. They emit frequencies that confuse your ear into ignoring the sound around you. They don't block the sound around you. They cause you to ignore it involuntarily, physically, like Advil. It's like the pain's not gone. You're just not feeling it now. So it's a practice. You know, yoga, I feel like yoga is also has very similar goal of experiencing your felt self, experiencing your physical self, experiencing the part of your body that cannot lie. Your unconscious, your physical senses, your physical nerves are really happening. They're not beliefs. They're not hopes. They're not fears. They are actually happening. And as a culture, I mean, screens are, nothing makes us not feel our body more than a screen. The screens are all about leaving the body and getting into this virtual, they call it virtual reality. I mean, the relationships on social media are virtual they're not real. They're not actual. They're virtual. They create the sensation of bungee jumping off a bridge because you're watching that, but you're not doing it. So I think music can be, like yoga, one of the things that a tool that helps us not screen out the world, you know, but it can also be an escapism. You know, I, I can put on music I really love and feel fucking wonderful while well, it's on, regardless of what's happening in my life. You know, so it's it's great for both things. It's great for escapism and it's great for reality tolerance training. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, and I loved what you were talking about earlier about like building that muscle of knowing that you can do scary things and the world isn't going to fall apart. And absolutely, you know, that's how we gain that confidence and our bodies become more tolerant to that, to be like, okay, well, that happened that one time and therefore I can do it again. And I, when I was doing my dissertation research, like that was one of the things that kept coming back to me because I feel like live music is like kind of a playground for life, you know? And so we get to have these experiences like that 
where we learn, oh my gosh, I can do this. Like I can go in a crowd of thousands and thousands of people and I can learn to navigate it and I can get from city to city and I can face the challenges that come. Obviously, that's even outside of like the actual music that's happening. But we have these experiences that give us that self-agency and that like confidence that, gosh, I can navigate life. Completely. And if you're doing it with like a really popular band, then you are also training your nervous system to trust community. And that is also something that in the last two generations, in America at least, like church attendance, two generations ago, even though I know all these people weren't trying to be enlightened followers of Christ in their deepest heart or whatever, but they at least had a community that they all showed up once a week and were members of. And that had a positive effect on some level, even if they were even if there were racists pretending to be Christian and all the atrocities committed in the name of religion, those are true. But it's also true that showing up for that group every week and having that group be there and somewhat accepting of you is a therapeutic modality that we no longer really have. I don't know hardly anybody that goes to church every week. And that's just a thing that is increasingly less relevant. For us to get physical community, not like yeah, I have a million Facebook friends and I'm part of a fish online group that has gazillions of followers or something. To physically be in a room with strangers and to have your nervous system feel safe. To have strangers be less strange, basically. To find a group of people that you can assume trust. You can afford to assume you can trust them. You can afford to let your defenses down, even though you haven't tested them each individually. You don't know everybody in the room at a show, but you can sort of assume that if they're there for that band, they are probably pretty trustworthy emotionally on some levels for you. So that experience is, where else can you get that? If you don't go to church and you don't go to live music, where are these people getting that experience? Maybe sports. Sports. Yes. There you go. I've never been to a, an athletic match of any kind, so... I have no data about that, but I know that that's actually probably the primary way that people experience physical community. But man, so much aggression in that modality. Like the musician isn't trying to conquer some of the people that are physically in the room. Like, you know, where it's like the sports is like, well, half of us are hoping to conquer the other half. Live music, we're all winners. Yeah, like there right. is no or, winner or losers if it's well, us. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're all in it together. Yeah. But you're all in it together on yeah. the same team. Yeah, I tried. I was describing that to my parents because they're huge Yankee fans, and they're like, "Why are you going to see the same band like hundreds of times?" And I was like, "Well, why do you go see the Yankees hundreds of times?" And my mom was like, "Well, the game is different every time." And I was like, yeah, exactly. It's different <laughs> yes. every time, except that my team always wins. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's the same level of risk as sports without a competitor or an enemy. But the, you know, the, it's kind of, in a way, it's an opportunity to make the barrier between your private self and your public self a little more permeable. Like we all kind of put on our game face when you leave the house. We're going out in public now. Parents expect very different things from their kids at the store than they do in the backyard. We're just really trained to have a public self and a private self and have there be kind of a hard barrier there. And music is a way to be somewhat in public and allow some of your private self out to stick a toe in the water of maybe I don't have to censor my private self quite so hard. It's a safe container. It's a safe container to grow and experiment and take new risks to be socially vulnerable. Yeah. I mean, the live music experience was the first time I felt safe to be who I really was. And then I felt like it was these like two separate people where I was show me or like festival me and then real life me. But then I realized that they're actually the same person. And because I felt that safetyness, like what you talked, you had your band members that made you feel safe so you could take risks. That same thing happened to me as a fan where I felt so safe. And then I was able to take risks in my life, whether it was like the way I was dressing or even the career that I decided to do. You know, I was a, a teacher and then I quit my job and then pursued whatever it is that I'm doing now. <laughs> <laughs> You're a healer now. You're a leader. You are volunteering to be reliable so other people can use you as a way to take risks. That is very similar to what I do. 
we're creating a space where people can have a novel experience and we are volunteering to be the reliable part of that experience. Like a yoga teacher. It's like, we're asking you to gamble that you can trust us. It's like, if you look at a little kid who learned to walk, but still kind of clings to mom and dad physically when they're around strangers, you take a little kid to the playground or something and they're around lots of other little kids that they don't know. And you can really see the various levels of secure nervous system at play based on, I guess, how outgoing they are, how, how safe they feel interacting with new people as three-year-olds or whatever. And you can see kids approach, like they're going and they're holding hands with their mom and their mom sits down and says, okay, you can go play now. Go play with those kids. They're nice, you know? And the kid will go walk 10 feet away, excited. Oh my gosh, yes, new kids. And then something will happen in the nervous system and they will turn around and from 10 feet away, look and make sure mom's still there. And mom's like, you got it, you can do it. And they go, okay, cool. And then they go and they forget themselves and they meet kids and they play. And then they'll be like, oh my God, is mom still there? Am I safe? They'll look and if mom's still there and still has her eyes on you, you're like, I'm good. Thereby you gradually learn that these situations are safe. And for a lot of us, that didn't happen. You found yourself in an unsafe situation at a developmental age and you turned around, is mom still there? And she wasn't or dad, or church, or whatever it is you're hoping to rely on as you grow and take new risks is not there for you. And then those become, if you don't take steps to address it, those become defining cornerstones of terror in your adult life, where it's like, well, I nobody had my back when I was around strangers, so I don't really like being around strangers now. You know, like that kind of thing. Like, you know, it leads to alcoholism. It leads to, it leads to a need to numb the signals, the warnings coming from your nervous system because they're so over the top, you know? And live music is totally ready, if you want it to be, to be a safe container for you to take risks and have uh, mom still have your back. Like, you can be like, am I still good? I'm still good. You know, is there still a community here that I can trust? There is. Is the band still funky? They are. Is the, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, and yet you are doing things in your nervous system when you're on the dance floor, when you're meeting people, when you're even allowing yourself to sort of go within and have a really inward experience of a live band that might not be social for you, like introverts still love live music. But even allowing yourself to go within around strangers is an extremely vulnerable thing to do. So... If you're looking for a place where you can retrain your nervous system to feel safe, it's hard to find a better set of circumstances than a live band, especially a live band that improvises, because a live band that improvises is taking risks with you. People had super moving experiences watching the Beatles. Imagine the Beatles were not improvising, but you, you watch these videos of people seeing the Beatles in 1965 when that was unprecedented information and when LSD was first sort of making the rounds and people Ken Kesey and the Prairie Pranksters went to see the Beatles at the Cow Palace not the Grateful Dead the Grateful Dead didn't exist yet so they were going to the Beatles and having these transformative experiences and that band was not improvising so add improvisation to that level of community and surrender and you can really 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 reprogram your nervous system Add psychedelics to that, and you can cover a lot of ground really rapidly. Yeah. When do we get to make live music an intervention for attachment disorders? Right. Because oh my gosh. I absolutely believe that, and psychedelics too, possibly. I think there's a lot of research going on into psychedelics for that, for controlled therapeutic use of psychedelics. Like I, I know it here in the Bay Area. I see things constantly online and in coffee shops, flyers for people saying, we're doing a study, MDMA for depression or MDMA with couples therapy or LSD for PTSD, you know, psilocybin for like, there's a lot of people sort of in, around UC Berkeley and that community that appear to be aggressively studying this. So I think there's a lot of hope there. Yeah, I believe MAPS is in San Francisco and they have a lot of funding for those kinds of things. And they're really finding that it's really healing people, which is, I mean, it makes sense to me. I'm actually doing a talk at the Psilocybin Summit all about that and how 
psychedelics, when used at live music, you can have a transformative experience. Like, yes, it's great to do it in ceremony in a therapeutic setting, but I also find it that it does that in that setting as well. Yeah. And I mean, I, I'm i in a pretty unique position because I am somebody with kind of an absurdly advanced experiential background in this because I've been touring as an improviser that likes psychedelics for 25 years full time. In that 25 years, I have attended probably 60 concerts and I've performed probably 5,000. So I don't have a ton of experience as an audience member undergoing this process. It's weird because on the one hand, I have a lot of experiential data and mileage in this area, but it's all from the stage. So in a way, we're being more vulnerable than the audience as performers in a way because we are literally making sound out of our nervous system. So we are risking humiliation. That's yeah, sort of you're the, up on stage. The deepest fear of a performer is humiliation, which is one of the primal fears because as hunter-gatherers, if we were kicked out of the group, you would die. You would die quickly. So we are neurologically predisposed to fear exclusion from the group. And that is the fear that all performers are confronting, whether they're improvising or not. An improvised performer, like, you know, if you're Meryl Streep and you are given an intense script of a gut-wrenching character that's going to go through all this stuff, and you go on stage and you method act your ass off and go through that transformation, you can take the audience with you and you can undergo a really heavy thing, but you have that script. And what an improvising musician is doing is that without the script. And so it's sort of like that level of transformation on steroids, you know, if you're down with it. But most people honestly are not down with it. They'll take a little bit of improvising with a very reliable groove or a little bit of improvising with a very reliable set list, you know, like, or a little bit of improvising with a very reliable light show even. Most people like small doses of it that build up over time. And I've always been more of the uh, take a huge, take a huge dose <laughs> every time, you know, like, like Jacob Fred. I mean, we wrote a lot of songs and I'm really proud of our songs. I'm not saying that we weren't performing songs, but our songs didn't have a bass part or a piano part or a drum part. They were plots without dialogue or actors. <laughs> so we would then be the actor and the dialogue and we would act out this plot without Sort of like Curb Your Enthusiasm, where it's like, well, we don't have a script. We kind of know what each scene is hoping to get to. In this scene, we want Larry to walk in and be mad at the coffee shop barista and then take a phone call. So you know that, but you don't know the lines. You don't know how it's going to play out. You just kind of know that's where you want to get. It's kind of like that, I guess. But the difference is when you watch Curb Your Enthusiasm, you are in a safe place watching a safe screen, watching a recorded event. Whereas live music is happening literally simultaneously with you and your insecurity and your fear or your comfort or your bliss or your joy. You're not responding to a recording. You're not responding to even something across a screen is pretty fucking safe. You know, even the most unsafe thing, if it's on a screen and previously recorded is safe. Yeah, I guess that's kind of like this podcast. Like we never have a plan of what we're doing. We're totally improvising and we don't even know where it's going to go and what's going to happen. But it's always the perfect thing. And just I mean, how did this conversation even start? It just did. And then it, it went to a really magical place that I know a lot of our listeners are going to get a lot out of. Oh, wait, uh, what time is it? Two o'clock. Two oh. two. I got to go. Okay. <laughs> I have a bass lesson two minutes ago. Okay. <laughs> okay. okay. I'm right. so sorry. I wasn't watching the clock. Much love. That's I okay. hope it's okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we'll say goodbye to Reed. <laughs> our our, our Reed. goodbyes are always so awkward. And that one, that one actually, <laughs> that is the perfect ending to what we were talking about just now. He just had to go. He like <sighs> disappeared into the moon dust. <laughs> <laughs> the ether. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's one way to end it. Yes. And that was certainly unexpected. And yeah, we kind of jumped into the unknown there with that episode. And it might not have turned out exactly how we were expecting at the end, but that's life, right? Yeah. And it's it's fun of like, okay, well, now Reed's all of a sudden 
gone really quickly without getting to say goodbye or anything. And then what do we do with that? And so he it's it's really amazing, actually, how it tied together, because it was almost like challenging us as like we're normally the audience members to then have to improvise and be vulnerable in a way. And so he he brought that to our reality and now we're doing it. Yeah. And flexible. Yeah. That was such an interesting episode. And there were so many things that stood out for me. And I think a large part of me really wants to have Reed back, like call him up <laughs> after his his base lesson and be like, okay, I need to ask you a lot more questions. So I look forward to hopefully doing that in the future. But I wanted to kind of highlight a couple of things that Reed talks about for our listeners for the segment of... Did you know? One of the things that Reed talked about a lot in this episode was the nervous system. And Reed has obviously done a lot of study of the nervous system. That's one of the questions that I have for him. How did that come about and and what piqued his curiosity? But for listeners, I would love to just give you guys a little little bit of detail about what he's talking about so that you can know this for your own life. And you know, if you're interested in finding out more, you can always find out more on the internet. Within our autonomic nervous system, there are two branches and one is the sympathetic branch and the other is the parasympathetic branch. And then technically there is a third, the enteric nervous system, that branch as part of the autonomic nervous system but that houses both the parasympathetic and the sympathetic branch. So I'm just going to be focusing on those two because that's what most people talk about in the autonomic nervous system is the parasympathetic side and then the sympathetic side. And so the sympathetic branch is what we associate with fight or flight. So that's like the activated arousal. If we detect something, a threat within our environment or even within ourselves, it will activate that sympathetic nervous system activation. And that's when our heart rate rises and our blood pressure rises. And in the immediate moment, I mean, this is based upon our survival. This is like how we survive. So it's actually really important for this to be happening so that we know that we're in danger and we can either fight or flight or do whatever we need to make sure that we survive the situation. But the problem is, is that we have such sympathetic activation within our world and also within our mind because our thoughts, you know, create these kind of like monsters and tigers and things that are not actually real that are activating our system all the time. So the long-term activation is not healthy because cortisol is released into our bodies during this and there's just a lot of stress that's put on our system. So the opposite end of that is the parasympathetic nervous system. And that is thought of as the relaxation response. And so if anybody's heard of the vagus nerve, the vagus nerve is actually the main nerve of the parasympathetic branch of the autonomic nervous system. So that is what allows us to calm down and to realize that, okay, we're actually not under threat. Everything is okay. Right now in this moment, I'm all right. So they kind of work together. You can't have both rearing at one time. If one is turned on, then the other is turned down. And they can both be kind of at the same level, at like a moderate level, but they're either up or down. And so that is a little glimpse into our autonomic nervous system, what Reed was talking about, about that sympathetic activation. And how experiences like having this feeling of safety those activate our parasympathetic side. So they allow us to be able to relax even though we're doing something scary. And so at that point, they would probably be operating at about the same level. I also wanted to just briefly bring in attachment because Reed talked about this a little bit with his description of like the child at the playground and kind of like moving away from the mom and checking back. And so there's secure attachment and insecure attachment. With the secure attachment, the person knows that there's safety out in the world and that they're going to be okay to like face this, this big, crazy, 
mean world because they have this caregiver that has provided this secure attachment for them. So no matter what happens, they have this like safe base that they can run and rush back to, to get that comfort. I had mentioned that, you know, when do we get live music to be this intervention for attachment disorders? Because I absolutely believe that it can be. And obviously Reed does too. And I think that's really exciting. And so far there isn't any research on live music as an intervention for attachment disorders. But I think that that is a field that should be explored. Yes, I completely agree. It's so interesting and it makes so much sense. And live music is such a healing thing and then using it in this way, it just it just makes sense to me. Yeah. So now we're going to go to my segment that is Daily Jail. Okay, so I'm going to take what Reed talked with us and the research that Leah has done and to come up with an activity and a challenge that you can do at home to evoke these same feelings in your brain. And so my challenge is a cooking challenge. I would like for you to make a meal where one of the ingredients, this is where you feel safe. So you're going to cook with one ingredient that you feel really comfortable with. And then the part of where you are being vulnerable and kind of going into the unknown is using a second ingredient that is something you've never cooked with and you don't know how to cook and it maybe even seems a little scary to you. And then I want you to make, it doesn't have to be a whole meal, it could be a snack or whatever you want it to be, but make something with those two ingredients and you can use other ingredients too, but there has to be one that you feel really comfortable using and one that kind of scares you and you never cooked with before. And I would love to see what happens. So if you can go to the Facebook community, the Groove Therapy podcast community and share pictures of your dishes and maybe your recipe, or you might not even have a recipe because you are kind of just like making it in the unknown. So it might just be throwing a little bit of this in and throwing a little bit of that in. That's cool too. And show your pictures to us so we can see what you created. That sounds like a lot of fun. Thanks, Charlie. You're welcome. And we are a part of the Osiris Podcast Network. And we're so grateful for each and every one of you for listening to us. And if you haven't subscribed to our podcast yet on Apple Podcasts, please do. And also give us a rating and write a review. We appreciate that so much. Tell all of your friends about us and spread the word. We love you so much. Yeah. And thanks so much, you guys, for being on this journey with us as we kind of step out into the unknown. And we look forward to a lot more episodes for you. We have some great guests coming up. And so definitely stay tuned. And thank you, Reed, for coming on today to be with us. We love you, Reed. Bye, everybody. Bye. And this just in, today is your lucky day because Reed has agreed to come back and do a part two with us and it is available for your listening pleasure right now. Yeah, so hop on over to episode four of Groove Therapy with Reed Mathis and hit the part two and we will be able to continue the conversation right away. So thanks so much again for listening to Groove Therapy and we will talk to you real soon. Mm -hmm.